Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June the 12th, 2020, and this is episode 2,680 of the Survival Podcast. Not 2,700. We will be there soon, though, won't we? 20 episodes away, but we won't get there before I go away for my vacation. That's coming in just about a week and a half. I do have an incredible lineup of rewinds for you. I was just on the Zello channel recently, and somebody asked about that. Um, if you haven't heard when I've mentioned this, what I've got for you on the upcoming Spearco vacation, which is you know happens usually once a year about this time of year, is going to be a series of rewind episodes that are all from the Insurrection series, and each one of them will have a step that you can take to getting what you want in your life as the new content portion at the beginning. So that's what's up and coming. Today, of course, we have an expert counsel Q&A show. These are all questions you sent in for the expert counsel, answered by them as you would expect. We have the ins and outs of off-grid property security for Gary, from Gary Collins today. We have Paul Wheaton and his crew on various results of several different hugaculture experiments that they've done. We have Tim the Toolman Cook with a uh, two-parter. He's going to talk to you about estimating jobs if you are wanting to go into a side hustle or a business as a handyman. And I think this is actually a really good one, too, for everybody because estimating jobs is a big part of determining whether or not you can afford a job. And estimating jobs is a big part of determining how much it really costs for you to have somebody do the job for you because we generally don't look at it that way. So if I have a job I need to do and it's going to cost me $1,000 in materials and a certain amount of time, and somebody says, I'll do that job for you for five hundred uh, for $1,500. The real cost of that to me, if I'm going to do the job myself anyway, isn't even $500. It's $500 less whatever I personally value that time at and how much time it would take me to do it. Plus, if it's something I may not do very well and I expect this person to maybe do a better job, the value differential of that removed from the $500. So you might find that a job that you have been putting off doing, but you have the money for it, has a real cost to you to have somebody else do it at 200 bucks. But you'll only be able to do that if you're good at estimating. So that'll be one side of it. The other is the care and maintenance of a uh, air spray paint sprayer. Uh, that both from Tim today. And then Doc Bones has some prep to survive if you get caught in a riot and how to avoid it in the first place from Doc Bones. And then I have a, a segment today called What a True Anarchist autonomous zone might look like. The thing that they're doing in Seattle, they're calling it CHAZ because they're stupid and they make it an acronym for everything. Um, the thing they're doing there, that's first of all, they're not anarchists. It's not an autonomous zone. Um, well, I guess it's supposed to be an anarchist autonomous zone and it's neither. So I guess I don't need to say anything else until we get to my segment. But I'm going to talk about what, because what I, what I saw, and I, I found this to be amusing. There were uh, quite a few people on social media saying that ANCAPs, which I guess is any ANCAR, in that world, is any uh, anarchist who is not an anarcho, an anarcho communist, which by the way is like saying dry water and not a thing. Uh, but we were all jealous because we never had the balls to seize an autonomous zone and, and various flavors of that. And I found that to be so ironic because, of course, people who are agorists, voluntarists, anarcho capitalists, etc., would never seize, um, and seize anything. Because it's counter to the core beliefs, that being the right to private property, 
that being the non-aggression principle. See, the, 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 to seize somebody else's property and declare it yours is a violation of both the right of private property and the non-aggression principle. It hurts people and takes their stuff. But what would it look like if, if people like me, if people like the folks that I, I, I talk to about, talk with, you know, about this subject with all the time, if, if we actually decided we were going to do an autonomous zone and Even if we did it the way they did it in a way, in other words, we're doing this, you don't get to change us, and we are going to defend it so that you can't. What would that look like? I think that approach itself might be a mistake, but what if we could make a bargain with society? A bargain with society. We want to go do this thing. We just ask that you to leave us alone. What that might look like, that'll be my segment for the day. Before we get to it, let's start out with uh, a quote of the day as to why this might actually, in some small way, be possible. This was a quote from a speech given by John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and unlike many speeches by uh, many presidents, when you invoke some ancient thing or something about another culture, it was actually accurate. Yeah, it was accurate. He said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, and the other represents opportunity. Now, I bet for many of you, that conjures up the words of Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. Just because something does, just because somebody does something bad with something, doesn't mean that the reasoning is flawed. So, you may not agree with the things that Rahm Emanuel was talking about getting accomplished in the particular crisis he was speaking of. I certainly don't. Because I don't actually agree with anything that advances the power and capability of the state. That's counter to my desires. But there's a, there's a fundamental truth in there. There's a fundamental truth in there, and it's much like a gun. You know, just because, we say this all the time as defenders of the right of self-defense. I don't even like using the term Second Amendment here. I'm not, when I defend my right to own a gun, I'm not defending the Second Amendment. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment may defend my right to own a, a gun, but my right to own a gun is my right to own a gun. I wouldn't give a shit if the Second Amendment existed or not, or if it was actually the 75th Amendment that, that, that invoked that right. I'm still going to speak for that right. It's, it, 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 the, the Bill of Rights isn't some you know, religious text that derives authority from God. It's a statement by men outlining and protecting the rights of other men, because the right is inherent to self-defense. So when we're defending that right, Just so I'm clear on what right we're talking about, right? It's not the right that was given to me by government or recognized by government. It's the right I have. When I defend that right, somebody pointing out that somebody else took a gun and did something bad with it has absolutely no bearing on my right to own that gun. I mean, there's a, a kid that lives around here that's a son of a rich, uh, idiotic father who used a defense in court called the affluenza defense because he got all drunk as a teenager. He had no license, no insurance, because you can't have insurance uh, if you don't have a license and you're too young to drive. Got drunk off his ass and drove a vehicle through a crowd of people and killed multiple people and injured others. He's barely served any time at all for it. The only time he did serve is for a probation violation when he went to Mexico with his mother, who's also an idiot. But So he improperly used alcohol. He improperly used a motor vehicle. His father and mother enabled him to do that. So should we ban cars, trucks, alcohol? Because somebody abused it? All right, so let's take that same principle to the concept that crisis 
is basically, in, in, in Chinese anyway, basically uh, translated as an opportunity within danger or danger that also has an opportunity with it. So if you think about something like COVID, COVID's a perfect example of this, where it's not just at the macro level of how the government handles it, but down at your level of a micro level. There's no doubt that COVID presents a danger to you as an individual in, in multiple ways. It is a virus. While I think for most healthy individuals, it is not something to really worry about any more than you'd worry about any other illness that you might contrive, um, there is always the possibility that you'll have some sort of major reaction to it. Additionally, if you've never been stung by a bee, you might be allergic to bee stings and not know it, and tomorrow you might go outside and get stung by a bee and die. Okay, so, but there is an inherent danger to the illness itself, and there's an inherent danger to maybe you, you would be fine, but you have people you care about who you know are in compromised situations who you really don't want to get enforced. So it has that danger. The more broad and more real danger is how stupid the government is in responding to it. Shutting down the economy. We could be looking at a global depression. I don't think we are, but if we don't change what we're doing soon, and the good news is it looks like we are, then that's the. I mean, if you if they keep doing what they like, what they were doing up until they just started to reopen some, if they keep doing that till August, it is a ten year global depression. I just want to be clear about that, right? So that's that's a big danger. But even in the short term, and even with this disruption, you have danger of losing your job, danger of your business going down, danger, 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 Will Robinson. Okay, but what are the opportunities? What are the opportunities? I know people that are, that are making, that were, let's for instance, they were primarily Uber drivers. Well, that business is really taking it hard in a lot of places, right? Uh, but they switched over to like Uber Eats and DoorDash, and they're making more money than they've ever made before doing that. Now that's starting to wane as things open back up. But see, they took that opportunity while it was there. They took that opportunity while it was there. One of them is uh, unemployed from their main job and drawing benefits plus, plus doing Uber Eats and DoorDash. Is that legal? I don't know. Maybe they said it. I don't know how they're doing it. I didn't ask. Maybe they have a corporation and they, they, they drive for their own corporation and have no direct income. Maybe they're passing that income through to a spouse because they've learned how to work the system. So they took the danger and they turned it into an opportunity. That's just my best guess. People said, how, how, how are jobs created? How are, how are businesses created in the middle of this? Are they lying about the statistics? I don't know. They lie about statistics all the time. But I can, I can rattle off a good 10 businesses that were literally founded in the middle of this crisis from my audience, from, from things you guys sent me. And if you think about it, the first week this really hit when they started locking things down and all, I'm like, okay, this is stupid, but we have to deal with it. Here's how to protect yourself physically. Here's how to protect yourself emotionally. Here's how to protect. That's what I did my first week. If you go back and look, the week of March 19th, that first week was all guest appearances. And we talked about protecting your health, your money, and your life. And one of the first people I had on was Nicole Sauce, and we talked about what? Starting a side hustle in the middle of a pandemic. Why? Because a crisis is composed of two characters, danger and opportunity. And so often we sit back like little bitches. Oh, look at the government. Look at what Rahm Emanuel said. Oh, my God, you're using the crisis to further their agenda. Oh, will you shut up, and will you do the same thing? Will you focus on your agenda? 
What's your agenda for your life? Do you even have one? At least the sociopaths and psychopaths that run things have a plan. Why don't you get your plan in motion and ask yourself, while this crisis poses a danger to me, what opportunities exist? And I can hear it now. I was listening today, and I'm so upset and depressed with you. I've been listening to you forever. I love when people write me letters like this. I've been listening to you forever. Then Did you learn anything? Anyway, let's continue with the hypothetical letter that, that I'm probably having typed to me right now that maybe the person won't send when they hear this. I've been listening to you forever, all the way back to the car, and I can't believe you said it today because you're being predatory, and you're saying that we should take advantage of people in their worst moments. I didn't say anything like that, did I? I should see the opportunity in the crisis. Let's look at this from circle of concern, circle of influence, and circle of control. The fact that there is a virus, wherever you think it came from, whether you think it's a bioweapon from 5G, which you're retarded, by the way, because New Zealand has lots of 5G and almost no COVID, just saying. Anyway, so no matter whether you think it was made in a lab, it got out of a lab, it's naturally occurring, doesn't matter, we have a virus. It exists. Your concern And anything you do, and standing on your head, and drinking milk, and chanting Molarum, Sulurum, Kularum, will not change the fact that that exists. The way the governments behave about this, again, do all the same shit, will not change anything. Somebody that will get the virus, get very sick, and have their life destroyed by it, no matter what you do, you can't change that. Somebody will get the virus and die, you can't change that. There's nothing you can do. It's going to do what it's going to do. But what you can do is say, how do I take opportunity in my own life? And it might be through serving people whose lives you make better. Because, you know what, when somebody said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do DoorDash and Uber Eats and whatever. And all these places that used to not be able to get them. See, this is what happened. Like where I live, like you can't get anything delivered here. But you can now. So all of that was an opportunity. And the people that did that, they made, like for me, it didn't really matter. I have plenty of food stored. And I was not afraid to go get more. And I was able to go get more whenever I wanted to. But there were a lot of people, they were shut in for the first time in their lives, and they did not have food. So the person that took that opportunity also helped the person. Because if that person didn't take the opportunity, there weren't enough drivers to meet the demand. See, that's taking an opportunity in the middle of a crisis. And it does not have to be predatory. I get an email, I heard you try to talk around it, jacket. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Anybody that writes to me like that, and they're like, I've been listening forever. I'm like, no, you haven't. You might have turned on my podcast, but you clearly didn't listen. And it amazes me. I had Pete Quinones Pete, uh, Pete today on Facebook said, I put out a, a, a somebody quoted me from, from yesterday's show where I talked about the education system being like a vaccination that prevents critical thinking and the media basically being your ongoing booster shot to make sure it sticks. And Pete Quinones said, Is there anybody in your audience that actually objects to it when you say things like this? And I'm like, there's a few. There's a few. Yeah, I, and I, I, I get the fact that in any large audience you have haters that listen every day because they hate you. I understand that that happens. I don't get why. If you really hate me and you hate what I do and you disagree with everything that I say and you think I am evil or incarnate or whatever, let me... I mean, I probably should go back. There was a time when I was reading hate mail, and it was really entertaining. And I, I just don't even care. I get hate mail, I just delete it, right? I don't even read it anymore. But it just it dumbfounds me because everything that I talk about is about freedom of freedom and liberty. Every subject is anchored by that concept. And there's no such thing as greater freedom than the ability to or not to listen to a podcast. 
I mean, I'm not even on the radio. There's nobody that's ever heard one second of this show that did not consent to hearing what I had to say. You had to consent to hear me, and yet you're outraged by it. That's that's amazing, and, and it really isn't if you think about all the things that people are outraged by. So since I'm outraging you, before I go ahead and bring our first guest on, um, let's let's have a, uh, a another little mental experiment today. I put this out on Facebook, and I'm still waiting for this trap to fully be realized before I spring it. And it's about these statues being torn down. And I'm going to say right up, there's some statues being torn down that the people tearing them down are, are clearly demonstrating their ignorance. Uh, I think it's the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. They destroyed that statue or they vandalized it or whatever. Uh, that was a, a all-black regiment that fought for the Union to help free the slaves that I think was made up largely of freed slaves. So, hello. And there's like another statue that they tore down from some university. And the guy was like a, a big time abolitionist and an inventor and the guy that helped found the university. Like, so I understand that the people doing the statue desecration are stupid. I get that. That's not my point. My point is when they, like, there's this statue of Robert E. Lee or somebody, you know, in some park in, in like, let's say downtown Dallas where there's one that they fought about. It's still standing there. And the, the demonstrations over it ended like three years ago. And the ruling was they were going to tear it down, and they didn't tear it down, and nobody really cared one way or the other. And I haven't seen anybody going to see it, like, I better see it before they tear it down. Like, as soon as the fight ended, no one cared, regardless of the result. But my question was, would you pay your money, would you willingly pay money to create a statue to somebody from an army that lost a war today? Would you pay for that statue today? Some people are saying they would. So see, my response to that is, well, then why don't you get all the people together that feel that way and pay for one of those statues that will be safe from the ability of these people to legislate pulling it down because it will stand on private property versus public property. Which is a problem. See, this is, this is showing the tragedy of the commons as a whole, right? Because what people that say, I don't want that statue there are saying is, that's, that, you're making me fund the maintenance of this thing that I find reprehensible. Welcome to reality. Because that's how the state works. Everybody's funding things they find reprehensible. I find it reprehensible that my money is used to drop bombs on children. I, I, I object to that. I find it objectionable. About 90% of what's done with my money, I find morally reprehensible. Right? You want to build roads? Okay, we can talk about that. Right? My roads? Okay, we can talk about roads. I have lots of ways to do roads without this system, but you know, at least I, I can admit that a road, unless you use eminent domain to steal somebody's property, other than that, roads are fairly benign. They're one of the most benign things government does. But I have a problem with my money being spent to indoctrinate children to belief systems rather than solely to educate them, just for one thing. And school is turned into an indoctrination of belief rather than a teaching of fact. So I have, I have a problem with that. So these people, even though they're okay with doing it for all the things they want, they, they're making a legitimate objection. I find this reprehensible. It's on public property. I have a solution. Let's. Why don't we take the things that we want to build memorials to and build them on private property, funded with private money and maintained with private money. And then that way, people that support it can like pay a fee to go there or make a contribution when they go there, even if it's free or whatever. And we can just not use public property to deify anything. Just a thought. But what if they tear down the Washington Monument? 
I really don't think we should tear down the Washington Monument. I really don't. I don't know how to answer that. Other than, well, maybe people that actually want to preserve the Washington Monument, which I'm sure there's, like, millions of them, should fund a private society, buy the land and buy it, and personally fund it, and then let people who want to support it support it, so that it's voluntary. Maybe that's an I don't know. Maybe that's an answer. Maybe you just say, like, if we have a thing, and we say this is really important, then we let people who feel that it's really important pay for it, and people that don't want to pay for it don't have to, removing their objection to paying for it. Maybe that's what we do. I don't know. What about a private college where they tore down a statue? That's that private college. I mean, they took all the money from all those kids, and they didn't have enough security to protect their property. See, I look at the colleges, and I go, you know, you're reaping what you sow. In the words of the of the Joker, you get what you effing deserve, don't you? You you radicalized all these kids. Now they turned on 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 you. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, better things, better 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 things. Starting out with uh, Gary Collins and the ins and outs of property security in an off grid situation. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, the creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things to make your life better. That's it. Simple, straightforward. Also, make sure to sign up for my newsletter, step for updates, and be a part of my inner, simple life inner circle, part of the tribe. Text to number 33777, and then text better life, all lowercase, one word. Be there. Do it. All right, today, get a lot of questions about off-grid remote living security. I'm going to give you the real basics, the easiest way to secure your property. One way, gates. Put up gates. And I use two gates. So what I do is I double layer. So I put a gate further down, then I put a gate further up the road. Yeah, it costs more. It's a pain in the butt, but it works. So if they get around the first gate, it's hard to get around the second gate. Of course, if they're on foot, they can get around anything, so it doesn't matter what you put up unless you put up an electrocuted fence. If you want to do that, go for it, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm just not going to invest the money. Um, but also using security cameras, and I use Bushnell wireless trophy cameras. Oh, wait, they're not called trophy anymore. Called something else. The problem is the new version goes through batteries like mad. I have an older version, so... Shop around, look around, long as it can get to your cell phone, uses a network and works in your area. There's a couple out there. But triangulation of your cameras. So what you want to do is you want to triangulate the area that you want to observe. What do I mean by that? It's got to, it's got to form, your cameras have to form a triangle. So each camera is pointed at the other camera. There's two reasons for this. It, it gives you a triangular pattern of visual Watch. So you could build a triangle around your house. It'll give you the front of the house. It'll give you the back of the house and it'll give you the side of one side of the house, but it'll all be covered because other side will be covered through the triangle. And with the cameras all pointed at each other, camera, camera, camera gives you the triangle. And also if they're, if they're a bunch of dummies and they try and rip off your camera, the other camera's taking a picture of them stealing your other camera. That's why you do it that way. Just makes a real easy solution, and you can triangulate a, a, a pretty big area as long as you have a good line of sight. So those are my two keys to securing your property and hopefully stop most trespassers, the ones on foot, 
if they walk up to your property, they're really stupid. But it's mainly, the gates are mainly for cars, ATVs, motorcycles, that kind of stuff. Kind of keeps them out, gives them a warning, hey, don't come here. Um, I have a 30 odd six with a very powerful scope. Just kidding, guys. Don't shoot your neighbors. Don't shoot your trespassers unless they deserve it. But all right, guys, again, thesimplelifenow.com. Next up, Paul Wheaton on some of uh, their experiments up at Wheaton Labs with Hugel Culture. And I guess for some of the uh, not quite initiated to the concept of Hugel Culture, I should give a very brief explanation of what exactly Hugel Culture is. In its most basic form, it is burying wood and planting into the place where you buried wood. Generally, though, it really means hill culture. So a lot of what people call Hugel Culture is basically wood in the ground. That's not necessarily Hugel culture. Uh, Hugel culture in German, Austrian, it means hill culture, to culture on, hilt, on hills that are built. And those hills are generally built by felling trees, taking all of the scrap, laying it along where you want this hill to be. And uh, many of the, the hedgerows that were infamous uh, during the fighting in World War II throughout Germany were indeed Hugel cultures. They were maybe so old at that point that any of that wood, wood core was gone. But there's a lot of reasons to do this beyond building hedgerows. Um, a lot of it has to do with the carbon uh, inputs from the wood, uh, fungal inputs, uh, fungal cultivation, um, irrigation. There's a ton of reasons for it. But that's basically what Paul's talking about. One way or another, taking wood and covering it with soil and then growing in that. So that this all has context. Paul, what's going on up in Montana? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. So I'm sitting here with Jennifer and Josiah, and we're going to talk about our variation of Hugel culture. And we do a lot of things that are quite different from what I guess I see on the Internet. Um, <clears throat> we recently built a bunch, and of course we already have a bunch, and there's you know lots and lots of lessons learned. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to convey that. One thing uh, is, is that I think we've got a pretty good policy of keeping them s at least seven feet tall. I see a lot of stuff on the Internet where um, it's like somebody's built something that's like not even a foot tall, and they're like, this is our Hugel culture. Has this been your guys' experience? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I built one that was a foot tall a couple of years ago. <laughs> and how did it do? It did nothing. <laughs> Yeah, same. I just had a shovel when I got tired after like a foot. <laughs> well, I said, if you're going to build something this big, it's like suddenly uh, and you're moving dirt with by hand. Uh, your your hugel culture is kind of you get a little ways along. You're like, yeah, that's as tall as I'm going to make it. <laughs> I just, ooh, there's not enough lemonade in the world <laughs> for this thing. You do you do definitely get benefits from burying wood anywhere, and no matter how large it is. But if you're if you're going for the the full on raised raised hugel culture technique. The taller, the better. And some people try to do stuff that's level with the ground, but I think that you know, adding texture to the landscape is of such enormous benefit. Um, I would like to advise people to not do the level stuff. Well, and just the increase in gardening area, even disregarding the benefits of the, the buried wood, like watching it go from a little flat spot that you can barely garden to a big pyramidal shape that has lots of gardening space is pretty exciting. And I think another thing is is that uh, we've got a bunch of examples all over the place here where <clears throat> stuff has uh, not received any irrigation. So, for example, down the turtle lot, that's just a berm. It's not even a hugel culture, and it's full of life all year, and we didn't water it at all last year or the year before. 
All right, now we're kind of getting off into the weeds a little bit. We've got we to stick to our list. We've only got a couple of minutes. Okay. Uh, uh, we, we work hard to try and keep it buried, keep the wood buried, because if the wood sticks out, then it acts like a wick. It'll, it'll suck water out of the hugel culture, and then the wood on the outside will dry out, and thus dry out the whole hugel culture. Correct. Uh, so we work hard to either, like if a stick somehow... A bone, a hugel culture bone sticks out. We, we do our best to either clip it off or mulch over it. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things is a lot of people when putting mulch on, and we, that would be a whole nother little thing, is all the different ways to mulch a steep hugel culture. But Sepp Holzer puts those, he makes those nails. He takes a, a stick with a fork in it, and he cuts one end short and leaves the other end like two feet long, and he uses it to poke into the hugel culture and hold mulch on. But we don't do that. Um, and so, because we don't want the stick to then wick water out. Right. Uh, so that's, that's a quick item. Uh, all right. We needed, uh, we had a spot where we needed like, what, five big hugel culture beds all next to each other. And so then you guys asked me, how do we go, how was the best way to go about doing this? And so then I laid out a plan and I was wrong. It turned out to be a mess and it had to be redone. And so it took a lot, a lot of extra excavator hours and diesel for that excavator to repair my mistake. Um, so I'm going to do my best to try and convey the mistake. You guys can jump in and slap me where appropriate. All right, I, uh, so basically we wanted to make these hugel cultures at least seven feet tall. And so I said, lay the wood down on the ground seven feet wide in one layer. And, and then uh, uh, where the paths are going to end up being, make that seven feet wide. And, and most of the time between hugel culture beds, you need a final destination path that's seven feet wide because stuff's going to grow at the base of the hugel culture really thick and your path is going to end up being two feet wide in time. Uh, just because of all of the, the growies at the base, the hugel culture. Um, and so I said, stack the wood seven feet tall, uh, have a seven foot wide path, and, or seven feet wide, stack the wood seven feet wide, one layer. That's another thing. I see people all the time, they stack their wood like four feet high, and then they put dirt over the top of that. And it's like, no, 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 you, you, you make one layer, and then you cover it with enough dirt so you don't see the wood anymore. Then you then you add another layer of wood, and then you repeat until done. Okay, so what happened was is we were digging down in between. So I got to say that our general strategy is to lay the wood on the ground, dig right next to it where the path is going to be. So you end up digging. If you're going to make something seven feet tall, dig down three feet, stack your new hugel culture four feet. Three plus four is seven. So your path is now three feet lower than the, the ground level was. This turned out to not work because then it was seven feet, the, the hugel culture was seven feet wide, three feet up. And then we needed to cover all that dirt to make it like nine feet wide. So we just started over. So the new strategy is to lay the wood about four feet wide and make your paths about 10 feet apart. Your path part is 10 feet wide. Then as you're digging down in the path to get the dirt to put on top of it, you end up with a seven foot wide path. And then uh, your hugel culture ends up being seven feet wide at the base, which is three feet lower than where you place that first wood. 
Does that sound about right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are so chatty. All right. <clears throat> I think uh, one of the notes I wrote down here from Josiah is uh, lots of space between Hugel culture beds. Yeah, if you you know if you want to avoid this problem, um, the Hugel cultures are they're going to get bigger than you probably imagine um, if you're trying to build them this tall. And so just make sure you leave plenty of room between the the planned Hugel culture beds so that you have a nice access way. So one of the things we talk about a lot here is angle of repose. So um, basically, if you take the material that you're building the hookah culture bed uh, with and you leave the wood out and just make a pile, it's going to end up at a natural, fairly gentle slope. And what we want from a hookah culture is a very steep slope. And so what do we do to uh, get the, the steepness that we want? You, you know, you, you build structure with uh, the biomass inside. So if you stack the wood at um, all kinds of different angles, it sort of builds like a, you know, a tangle or like a log cabin type shape that then allows the hugel culture to have really strong structure interior, um, and that holds it up against the angle of repose. I would say that uh, the one thing I like to do is to make sure that not all of the wood is going long ways with the hookah culture, but also crossways. So like smaller branches are good to go crossways, and that helps to give a kind of a structural engineering, soil soil engineering, uh, to hold it up uh, uh, steeper than the angle of repose. Uh, another note we have here is, and Jack's going to like this one, uh, contrary to contour. We definitely go with wiggly shapes. We do not do straight lines. Uh, but contrary to con- we don't want to have frost pockets. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people that just seem hell-bent on, like, building hugel culture on contour. And I, I'm, I, I think I, if I say nothing now, Jack will go on a 20-minute long rant about why you should never <laughs> build your hugel culture. And I think if you're in a tropical climate or a subtropical climate, fine. You'll make a frost pocket doing it, but you kind of want to do that. All right, so moving on from contrary to contour. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> did either of you want to cover how we've discovered that rocks have great fertility if you put them at the top of your hugel culture? Nope. Um, sure. Uh, so basically, the rocks at the top of the hugel culture create a nice path on which a person can walk and then, let us say, irrigate the hugel culture <laughs> <laughs> with nitrogen-rich material. <laughs> <laughs> what a polite way to say piss on it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, but I, I think another thing is is not much stuff does well at the very tippy top of a hugel culture. And, and so then the rocks... Uh, help to uh, uh, keep the moisture from escaping while at the same time giving an opportunity for somebody to walk up there and contribute that fertility and moisture. Um, Oh, uh, Jennifer and I have been working on the Hugel Culture book. We got to uh, get the, uh, we got to finish it. We got to get that book finished to its alpha state and get it out uh, because it was one of the rewards for the last Kickstarter and we have to get all of our rewards done for the last Kickstarter before we can start the next Kickstarter. And Jennifer's grinning big because it's like we're planning on something like with the next Kickstarter, maybe in a month. Yeah. Yeah. Is And it's like, this is going to be really different. Like I've never done a Kickstarter like this one before, but th- that's coming. That's another time. All right, Jack, that's the news for now. Thanks. Bye.
Next up, Tim Toolman Cook on a, a two-parter, one on estimating jobs and the second um, on uh, using a air-powered spray gun. And this would probably apply to just about any kind of uh, uh, spray gun. Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada to answer a couple of expert counsel questions. This week's questions both come from Matt in Virginia. The first is, I'm in the process of starting my handyman business and need some guidance on estimating jobs. I have very little experience estimating materials and marking this up. Do you have any tips or tricks for someone starting out? First off, if you aren't marking up your materials, you're basically giving the customer an interest-free loan. There's definitely money to be made in materials and supplies. If it's a small amount of material, I try to mark it up 50%, and on larger invoices, I'm happy if I can make 30 points on it. Now, to be honest, if you're really new to the game and are more comfortable just pricing labor, you can always get the customer to pick up the materials and pay for them, or you can pick them up after they've paid for them. There are a lot less risks involved if you only supply the labor. That way, on the odd chance if the customer doesn't pay you, you're only out your time and don't own anything for supplies. However, I always say, quote, labor and materials because you don't want to leave money on the table. Now, estimating jobs, they'll become second nature over time but you'll probably feel lost at first and might even underbid a few jobs early on. I know I did. Just chalk that up to paid education and learn from it. Because if you underbid a job, one thing you'll learn is you'll despise it the entire time. So remember that feeling and don't do it again. Now, being good at math helps. So having a basic understanding of area and perimeter help when doing a painting job. Remember, 400 square feet to a gallon. Also, always keep a tape measure on you no matter where you go. Even if you're just going to have a chat with a customer, have it with you. As well, go out in a field sometime, uh, a known distance, pace it out so that you know the distance of your paces, so you can roughly pace out some jobs. I've got quite a few quotes that way, um, because it's close enough to give you a good price. Whatever you estimate for materials, always make sure you add on an extra 10% for buffer. You can always return it later, or save it for a future project if needed. Because there's nothing worse than running out of material on a Saturday evening after the building yard is closed. Just ask me, I've done it. Another important aspect of this is knowing your local market. You can price check with competition or find similar sized businesses in similar sized towns in your area and call them for a quote or check out their business site and Facebook page for pricing info as well. When you're first getting started, quote everything you can early on. Even if you know you don't have a chance at getting the job, this will build your experience and confidence. And if you don't get a job and you're comfortable with that customer, it's okay to ask them you know, what was the reason I didn't get the quote or, you know, and if they say your price was too high, don't lower your price. Just move on. So, you know, for next time, remember, as Jack says, you should always be a little bit uncomfortable with your price. If one customer says no, you didn't want that customer anyway, but if five or six say no, you may need to make sure that you aren't pricing yourself out of the market. I hope that helps. There are so many things I could touch on with this one, but if you want more help, contact me directly through Facebook. I'll gladly help you there where I can. I've learned lots from this. Matt, second question is, I inherited a Graco 390 airless paint sprayer from my father after he passed, and I have zero experience using it. I'm looking to paint a 40-foot shipping container and need some guidance on what type of paint to use and what would work with a paint sprayer. Any help would be appreciated. So as far as painting the sea can, make sure it's well prepped before you paint. If it's dirty, pressure wash it. Any loose rust, sand it or grind it off, and use the highest quality metal primer you can afford. Once you've got a good base, you can paint over it with any type of metal paint you want. But that goes with any paint. Preparation is key. Make sure the surface is clean and dry, no chemicals on it, 
and then go ahead. Now, as far as the sprayer goes, two main tips for air spraying. First, clean, clean, clean. The easiest way to ruin a paint sprayer or to have a really bad day, and ask me again, is to leave paint in it when you finish up. If it dries, you can be in really bad shape to the point of there's too much in there and you need to send it away to get it serviced because you can't even clean it. But if by chance there is some dried paint in there, you can try lacquer thinner to soften it up and loosen all those hard paint. As it works itself free, you're going to expect to get a lot of hard flakes coming out and particles continuing to work their way out for quite a while afterwards. So you're going to have to keep a close eye on the paint that you use. Now another issue you may deal with, even if it were put away properly, are some of the seals might have dried out and cracked. You may need to replace those. They're fairly easy to get a hold of. Now if you're lucky and it was put away properly, the next key is preparation. You'll be able to save a ton of time once you begin the application, but the devil is in the details. Take your time taping everything off. Make sure your tape lines are straight. This is the boring part, but taking your time and doing it right will help in the long run. Now, you probably have a few different paint nozzles or tips that came with it. Take a few minutes and test each one out on some cardboard or an area that doesn't matter to find out what you're comfortable with. Take some time to experiment with the distance and the speed and develop a rhythm you're happy with. It won't take long and you'll be painting like an expert. When you're finished, did I mention that it's important to clean? So make sure you clean it. Make sure it's clean before you start. Make sure it's clean when you finish. Run the appropriate type of thinner for the paint you sprayed through until everything runs clean. Then flush the sprayer with water for a bit. If it's going to be a while before you use it again, get a product similar to one called Pump Armor to prevent rusting of critical components. And then just a few more quick tips to throw at the wall here for you. Check the pump filter and spray filter and clean both regularly. You know, they could be hardened up and dried in there. You may need to replace them all together. Make sure the pump has proper oil, and if it doesn't, add as needed. If you have an extra bucket and a filter screen laying around, pre-filter your paint. It's going to help extend the life of your sprayer's filters so they don't get clogged up sooner than they needed. And one final thing, especially in my northern climates, if you store your sprayer in an unheated garage, then you may need to worry about winterizing it. During the cold months, if you have an unseasonably long cold snap, it could freeze and split some of those components apart, especially if you flushed it with water when you finished. So anyway, guys, that's all I have for this week. Thank you so much. Tried to knock out two quick questions here for you. If you want to check in with me and see what I'm doing, take a minute and come over and like our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. We're quickly building a community where entrepreneurs and handymen can grow their businesses and learn from one another. I'm also doing regular tool review videos so you can see what I'm using on a daily basis. And remember, if you have any questions regarding home maintenance, tools, the handyman business, lawn care, or even being a solopreneur, send them to Jack and I'll be glad to answer them. Anyway, guys, thanks so much. Stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So, so the one thing I'll add to this is that um, there are services now, and I can't remember what the, the one that's being advertised heavily on TV is called, and I didn't look it up, but you can find it. And basically it is for if you're going to have a job done. And you go, and it, obviously it's creating leads for contractors is what it's doing. But you can go in and basically outline what you want done, a basic uh, concept of what you want done. 
and it will tell you what others in your area are typically spending to get that same thing done, like kitchen remodel, a deck, etc. How accurate it is, I don't know, but the fact that it even exists is, is pretty interesting to me. And I'll, I'll relate it back to when I did a lot of estimating in sales uh, in the data cabling industry. And it was not uncommon to be at your desk and you know get a thing from the, the receptionist, uh, Mr. Spearco, we have someone that wants to get some labor rates on line three. You know, okay, fine, pick it up. That's a lead, right, for a sale. So you, you're kind of excited. And you, you start listening to the person. Right away you go, you work for one of my competitors. You know they do. They're like, yeah, I've got this big job, man, and I just need some labor rates. For what? For, like, cable installation. Oh, okay. Well, tell me about the job. Oh, it's just regular cable running and stuff like that. Oh, okay. You know, and, like... Well, how many drops, whatever. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, it's it, we need people by the hour. So they just want hourly rates, right? And you're like, well, like, for how long? A week, a month, a day? Because that matters. Like, if you're going to guarantee me four guys for a month, I'm, I'm going to give you a better labor rate than I'm going to give you if you want one guy for two hours. In fact, I'm probably not going to send you one guy for two hours on a straight labor rate. You know, who do you work for? And, um, you know, you, you listen to it, you're like, no, you don't. And then, you know, you just hang the phone up and immediately, you, you know, this is in the days where it was kind of a new thing that every every single number that came into a PBX system had a DID, direct inward dial, and you could see where the call came from. So you just call the number back and you'd hear something like, hello, McBride Electric. And you're like, really? Um, is Rick there? Uh, Rick? Yeah, is your name Rick? Because, you know, he dialed from his desk. Yeah, this is Rick. Hey, Rick, we just spoke. This is Jack over at Data Connection. Uh, I wanted a little bit more information from you, specifically as to why McBride Electric wanted my labor rates. And what it was is they're an electric company, but they also do data cabling, and, you know, they're getting in to do a bid, and they uh, they call some data cabling companies up, so they have any idea where to even start, because they don't know. Because they're going from a licensed trade electrical, electrical to an unlicensed trade of, of, of you know, Data cabling, data and voice cabling is not a licensed trade. So it's a totally different market. They don't know, so they just want they want your information so that they know where to start a bid at. Well, basically, the type of service I'm talking about has made that information a lot more public. And then the beauty of that and the beauty of estimating is you get to where you are able to do things very quickly on the fly. I used to go, I'd go in for a customer and I'd say, you know, what do you think this is going to be ballpark? And I'd look at it and go, meh. I, I think this is going to be. You can't hold me to this. I got to go do a workup, a takeoff, and I'm like about 180,000. And I usually come in within two, three percent on the job. And it was because there was a very clear formula. There was a market rate per drop when you're doing data cabling. So even if it's you know, a thousand drops, two thousand drops, it's all proportional once you go over a certain minimum. Because a certain minimum, like I can't put people on a on a job site for two days if it's going to be ten drops. But there's a lot of complications to get them in. And do that for $100 a drop. I lose money. So I'm not going to lose money, like Tim said. So, But once you had a big enough job that things became proportional, you could just go, well, you know, the market rate on voice is about $90 a drop. On, and this is this is years ago. So if, you, if you're in the industry, you're like, that's low. I'm sure it is. You know, $90 a drop on voice, about 110 on data. You know, and then, okay, well, you got a fiber backbone, three telecom closets uh, across three floors. And then that would be, you'd be really easy to kind of work up a number in your head. And then you'd be like, okay, well, this is new construction. I'm going to have to deal with your general contractor. Okay, that's going to add 10% because we're not going to be able to work. And, and what would end up with is basically two scenarios. The one scenario is, well, since this is new construction, if my guys are guaranteed unfettered access to their areas 
and we can work every day, eight hours a day, Monday through Friday during normal working hours. This is how much I can do the job for, but that's not how much I'm going to bid. I'm going to take into account all the things that are going to get in my way, and I'm going to bid that. And then if my customer pushes back on price, then I'm going to have a conversation. Well, the people you got this lower price bid from, do they understand that they're going to be working with your general contractor who's going to be doing plumbing right in the middle of their installation? And that they're always going to be the ones pushed to the back since that's what they do. Now, you might wonder how that applies to a bid on a handyman job. Well, are you going to, are you going to be here every day so your dog's not in the backyard so when I show up I can actually work? Um, that thing you want done along the fence line, is your neighbor okay with that? Have you already talked to him about it? See, there's all kinds of shit. And that's what you need to be looking for. What's going to get in your way? And whenever you quote a price, you need to be clear. And we call, you know, it's way in larger jobs, it's called change orders. And within the contract, it would be, under these circumstances, we have a change order. This is what a change order is. This is how much it costs. And when there's a change order, you don't do the work until the customer pays for it. But we want four more drops over there now. Hold on. All right, here's your change order. Now, you don't need to be that formal, but you need to think that way if you don't want to lose your ass in the handyman world because it's much more difficult. Jobs of a certain size with a certain amount of manpower on them, there's a lot of things I can do if they screw me up on their end. Like, I can just send three people home and keep the job moving and cut my labor rate for the day. I can put them on a different job. I can pull them off and send them somewhere else. When I'm in the middle of a job with one person and I get shut down, I'm losing everything. So just think that way. On the other end, when you're planning your own jobs, think this way for estimating your own jobs. And think this way for negotiating with your contractors and be fair. I do not want a contractor bidding a job and losing money on my property. I do not want anybody that works for me ever to lose money. I hate that. The guy that built my deck doesn't want to do any more work for me because he lost money. I tried to talk him out of losing money. I tried to pay him more. He wouldn't take it. He wouldn't listen to me about the rock. So I have a contractor that doesn't want to be anywhere near my property who's a good contractor because he lost money. So you don't want them losing money. But you don't want to be taken advantage of either. Uh, let's take another one. This one uh, on protests uh, with Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and the latest Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. As a free speech advocate, I support the people's right to protest and make their opinions heard. Unfortunately, demonstrations in the U.S. these days are becoming more frequent and violent. After a short break due to the pandemic, people are again out in the streets, some with legitimate concerns and others with bad intentions. I've spoken about this before, but it hit home recently when the pharmacy on the bottom floor where my daughter lives was broken into and looted. This is in the city of Chicago. Luckily, no fires were set. She has a golden retriever, though, and dogs need to be walked. Hence, I worry, how can she stay safe in such an environment? I haven't been to a protest since the Vietnam era, and in that I was inadvertently caught in a wave of people escaping a barrage of pepper gas just on the way to class. Back then, I was fit enough to hightail it out of there. Today, well, I don't know, not so much. There's so much civil unrest in the news these days that any major city can become a tinderbox. Therefore, it's a good idea to have a riot survival strategy, whether you plan to be there or just a bystander. It goes without saying that your objective should be to stay away from where the violence is occurring. Rule number one, if you walk smack dab into a demonstration, things can get dicey pretty fast. Therefore, when it comes to going to areas of civil unrest, ask yourself the question, is this trip necessary? 
I've written a lot about situational preparedness, and that mindset will serve you very well. A situationally prepared person should always be in a state of yellow alert. Yellow alert simply means being calmly and vigilantly aware of your surroundings and the people around you. When a person or group of people behave strangely, take note and avoid them. Large groups tend to exhibit what we call herd behavior. They tend to do what other people around them are doing. This is because those who join the group in the behavior figure, well, if several other people are doing something, it must be worthwhile or they wouldn't be doing it. I mentioned in my active shooter videos that if 50 people around you drop to the ground at the sound of a gunshot, you're probably going to do about the same thing without even thinking, even though it's probably better to run in the opposite direction from the sound. There are aspects of behavior in civil unrest that change the rules of polite society. The greater anonymity that exists within a group makes a person believe that they can act a certain way and not have the same consequences as if they were acting alone. For example, if someone in a large group is looting a store, they might believe there's less chance of getting caught, and they might feel less personal responsibility about their action. Always mentally map out routes of escape as you walk along. Where's the nearest side street? Is there a building or subway entrance that will take you out of harm's way? If you don't know the area, move away to where you do know the lay of the land. If you have to make your way through a crowd, make sure you stay on the fringes. Don't get caught in the middle of masses of people surging away or towards the violence. If you do, they're deciding your movements, not you. Don't underestimate the state of confusion or even panic that can exist in a large group. Say a crowd of people incite law enforcement to use tear gas. When the crowds run to escape the gas cloud, they could run right into you. In extreme cases, some folks could even get trampled by large numbers of folks that are trying to move quickly in the same direction. Having said that, unless everyone else is rushing in your direction, don't run yourself unless you have no choice. If you're the only person moving in high gear in a crowd, you will attract unwanted attention. That doesn't mean you should mosey out of there, walk fast and purposefully around the corner or to a safe spot. Avoid being caught against walls, fences, blockades, and other solid objects if you can. You could get crushed by masses of protesters. And by the way, avoid confrontations with these people. Don't engage in political discussions, and it's probably not a good idea to wear your convictions on your t-shirt or your hat. In the wrong place and the wrong time, this can get you attacked, pepper sprayed, beaten, or even killed. It's a sad statement on today's society, but it's true. It pays to be inconspicuous. This may be difficult if you're six foot eight inches tall, but otherwise, well, do your best to be what we call the gray man. You should also have a bandana handy. This is a classic survival supply, not a gas mask per se, but most people have a face covering in these pandemic times, so might as well use it. It's better than nothing at riots where tear gas is sprayed. Now, some advocate soaking the cloth with lemon juice or apple cider vinegar to counteract tear gas, but I'm not sure. I think that this may just be an urban myth. Wear sneakers or other footwear that will allow you the most mobility. The only women wearing high heels are going to be reporters. Foolhardy reporters at that. Make sure you're well clothed so that your skin is protected. You're going to need to wash clothes thoroughly that might have been exposed to tear gas or other chemicals, or you might have to throw them away. Be aware of the movement of law enforcement officers, but do not approach them. Their job is tough enough, and they may be dealing with a hostile confrontation at the moment. Besides, they're not going to be able to hear you probably above the roar of the crowd. If you're with friends, stay together. If you can't, agree on a meeting place beforehand in case you wind up getting separated moving through the crowd. In areas where civil unrest is rife, carry some cold water, milk, or diluted liquid antacid like Maalox 
or even baking soda solution, which is, by the way, recommended by the people who make mace, if you're sprayed with tear gas. You want to move quickly into an area of fresh air and pour the liquid on your face, especially your eyes. Drink it if you were sprayed in the mouth. Milk or liquid antacid are thought by some to work better than water, but there's no hard data one way or another on this. Baking soda solution, by the way, should not be taken with a full stomach. The good news is that even if you do little or nothing, the effects of tear gas will resolve over time. If you're involved in a protest or traveling through any area experiencing violence, you should carry a basic medical kit that will help to treat injuries and stop bleeding. I know where you can get one. I used to say that it's likely you're never going to get caught in a civil unrest event, but you know what? I'm no longer so sure. Having a solid plan of action in these troubled times just makes common sense. You should prepare for man-made disasters just as you should for hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you don't have a good medical or dental kit, I know where you can find one. Just check out Nurse Amy's entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Remember that the Members Support Brigade gets a coupon code for 10% off anything in the store. Thanks again. I'm sorry, but I get a little bit of a snicker out of that. If you knew Bones the way I know Bones, you know Bones and Amy are very close family friends of, of Dorothy and I. Uh, to, to picture him hightailing it away from a riot is is pretty pretty much a riot in my brain. Anyway, let's let's talk about my subject for the day, and I'm going to try to keep this one brief, unlike a lot of my segments at the end of a show. Um, autonomous zone in Seattle. So we have all these, uh, and the TV keeps calling them anarchists, and I'm like, you keep using that word and you do not know what it means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. right? It's the only thing good to come out of that movie. That you, got, you guys have browbeated me about that stupid movie for 10 years, and I finally watched it, and I wasted like 90 minutes of my life, and I'll never get back. That's a horrible movie. I'm sorry. Uh, but it does have some good quotes, and, and that word does not mean what you think it means is, uh, is definitely one of them. And... Uh, they keep using this word anarchy, and they do not know what it means. To, be, to them, anarchy is lawlessness and chaos, and that's not anarchy. Anarchy is the concept of a stateless society and no rulers. It is not without rules. It is not without order. Um, and this autonomous zone is a joke. It's a joke, and it's a joke because the people in it have no ability to sustain themselves, so they cannot be autonomous. If you want to be autonomous, you have to be able to sustain yourself. So they have, they, they've crammed thousands of people that do not have any skill sets or knowledge or money or resources into a six-block area, put up a bunch of plastic barricades, set up some campsites, and tried to grow a garden by j dumping some bags of dirt on the ground and throwing some plants in it and wondering why it didn't grow in a day. I, I mean, I'm, you're not, I'm not making that up. This is literally what's going on. But that, that, that's easy to kick. That, I mean, I could just spend ten minutes wasting time criticizing these people. There's no need to. And there, you know what you should do about it? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, just wait. They'll all go home. They have no they have no prayer of succeeding in what they're doing. So, you know, the only thing that's a problem is the people that own houses and businesses inside that area being affected. But for all of the talk, I haven't heard any of them say anything yet. I haven't heard anybody come out and go, hey, you know, my business is shut down because of this. Or, hey, they didn't let me in my house. I still have a problem with it because it is private property. So let's let that be what, be what it is. And I'm just going to say, by the time I'm done with it, you'll understand why they are not anarchists. They are communists. And communists cannot be anarchists. The two things do not go together. You can have communism inside an anarchy, but you cannot have anarcho-communism. That's it, it, Again, it's wet water. 
So I saw several people, and some that I even sort of tend to agree with on a lot of things in, in the, the anarcho and liberty space, say, you know, ANCAPs are just pissed off because they haven't had the balls to seize an autonomous area yet. Uh, no. Because it's an anth it would be the antithesis of everything that I believe in. So as a as an anarchist, I personally believe in a, a few founding principles that once I believe anybody else believes, then we can probably generally get along and, and do fairly well with each other. And the first and foremost is I believe in the right of property. That when you rightfully acquire something, it is yours. If you don't steal it from somebody, if, if whoever had possession of it decided to, to divest of it and give it to you for some, some form of value and did so, or if somebody willingly gave it to you as a gift, or if it was literally owned by nobody and you turned it into something and you created value and you can defend that value in your creation and, and possession of it, then it's yours. So I believe in private property. And I believe in the principle of non-aggression that can be summed up very briefly and don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. So I can't, as an anarchist, seize anything. Right, immediately, that is, that is what communists, communists seize things, And they call, you know, seize the means of production. Okay, so you're stealing. So that violates the non-aggression principle and it violates the right of property. So regardless of your view on those people, my principles prevent me from emulating what they've done. Even if I would do something with, with it after I did it and you would approve of the, what I did with it after, you should object to me if you are in any way decent and moral as a person You should object to me seizing the property of others. That's wrong. Okay, I'm glad we agree with that. So then you should you should be an anarchist because that's what government does every day is without approval seizes the property of others by force. We're not going to solve that, certainly not today. I just want to talk about what about an anarcho-autonomous zone? How would that actually work? I don't want six blocks. I'm greedy. I want, like, let's say 100 square miles. A hundred square miles. And I here's my deal with society if I can have this. I will not seize it from anybody. All we need, I don't want it to be West Texas in the middle of Rocky Mountains with no water. Let us buy it from people willing to sell in anything approaching a decent climate with some way to get water. Because you got to have water. Whether that's surface water, whether that's the ability to put wells in and have enough water below the surface to make that work, do rain catch, whatever. As long as it's a reasonable climate. And see, I would have this anywhere and everywhere, but since I'm having to do a zone where I'm going to have to take care of myself and others on 100 square miles, I need at least that. But I'm willing to pay for it. I'm willing to pay market rate for it. I'm willing to pay like 1.25 times market rate for it. And I'll get a bunch of people together and we'll buy it. And maybe we'll buy it as in that everybody takes up some property and we buy it. And then we, based on how much we all put in, we each get a piece. And that piece is, is 50% of what we actually bought. And the other 50% we use to bring others in later and we use it to sell. And as we make money by selling the right to that property, we distribute the income from the property to people proportional on how much they bought, you know, like a good corporation would, right? Maybe we don't call it a corporation. We kind of follow that rule. Like I bought, you know, X, so I get X times 0.3 or whatever when we sell. 
for that amount of property. And that way we can, over time as we build and grow and attract people, we have something to divest of. Of course, you can only sell your own piece of property within it because we believe in free markets. But that would be the basis of how it would work. And then within that, this is what I want. Anything we do inside of there is our business, and you don't get to say anything about it at all. But what about shut up? You don't know. Autonomous means autonomous. How will you? None of your business. But I'll get to that. But I want 100 square miles, 50 square miles, 20 square miles, 10 square miles. What can we do? Where I and others can go buy our freedom from you. You don't have to provide any roads inside there. You don't have to provide my schools, my roads, my nothing. Now, I do want to do commerce with the rest of the world, including the United States of America. So anytime that we buy something from outside and bring it inside, we will pay sales tax or whatever on it. But we're not paying any property tax on our... When we buy that 100 square miles or whatever it is, it's over. We bought it. So if you want to charge us 1.5 times what it's worth, that's fine. We're never paying you again. It's ours. It really is ours. We actually own it. It's autonomous. We didn't seize it. We didn't take it from anybody. We have no demands. That would be my big, other big difference. If you are an anarchist, you don't make demands of others. You ask to be left alone. So you don't have to worry about how we'll do anything. Because most of what we're going to do, we will gladly share how we did it in open source format. Because we're not going to be just making houses out of brick mud. We'll make some houses that are exactly like the houses you live in. We'll make some very innovative houses. We'll make whatever is best for the person paying for the freaking house because it's their house. Well, what kind of building codes will you have? None. But I'm sure the person building the house is going to want assurance that the person helping them build the house is not going to fall on their head. Where I live, there's no building codes right now. I've not seen a single house fall down on anybody's head. Not a single building code. So you don't worry about that. But we'll, put, we'll be happy to put everything out. And you can look at it if you want to. But you don't get to say anything about it. And then we take all of our ideology, the belief in the right of, of self-determination, the right to freedom, etc. And again, we'll do commerce with you. And we want to be able to travel in and out of the autonomous zone. And when we're out in your space, we'll go by your rules 100%. Maybe inside Spearco-Stan, if you want to carry 20, 25 guns strapped to your back at the same time, you can. No one will say anything except, boy, you look stupid. That's pretty heavy. Are you sure you need that? Okay, whatever, man. Right? But if we go outside of our autonomous zone and you have a rule, we'll respect your rules. You respect ours if you come inside. Which means, number one, you don't get to come inside unless somebody that owns property says you can. And that doesn't mean that you're... Well, you don't get to come inside unless you're a cop. No, you don't get to come inside. It's an autonomous zone. But everything that we did would be done from a, de a demonstration standpoint. Let us prove this works better. Now you have to ask yourself, and I, I guarantee I'm not the only person that thinks this way. And if I, if I could get approval to do this, which is ironic that I would need approval to buy a piece of property and be left alone on it, okay? And if there's something we're doing that's physically affecting someone off of the property, like our shit is running downhill and literally shit is running into somebody else's property, we'll handle that as a stateless state, right? Dealing with a state-state. Whatever that means. We'll find out when we have to. No one's ever done it before, so we'll figure it out. We'll work. We'll be, hey, hey, Tom's shit's rolling down the hill. Let's do something about Tom's shit. It behooves everybody inside Spiritistan to do that, okay? So we can handle that. 
but you don't get to do shit. And all we ask is to be left alone. And again, if I decide I want to go to Florida and I want to fish on the beach, I will buy a fishing license. And if I don't, the state of Florida will find me and I'll pay the fine. And if I don't pay the fine, they'll throw me in jail. Okay, fine. But when I go to Spirico Stand and I'm fishing in the stream that runs through Spirico Stand, you don't get to tell me I need a license. See how simple this is. Now, let me tell you, think about the fact that, that that is something that would be almost impossible to do. Impossible to do. That you would literally end up with the federal agencies surrounding you. And we'd probably end up in a Waco-style standoff. And somebody would probably get shot. And I'm sure the media, if, if 50% of the people inside Spirkistan happen to be black, the media would still call us white supremacists. Why would something like that be so vigorously and viciously attacked when something like what's going on in, in, in Seattle is kind of like Trump's like, ah, orange man angry, and then like the media's like, oh, look at them, it's like a black party, and but nobody's really doing shit. Nobody's really doing shit. Well, because number one, it won't work, and number two, it's not sustainable. They won't make it long term. That's, that's why they'll leave it alone. In the short term, it helps both sides. Trump gets to rally his base, the media gets to rally their base, and they both get to make something out of it that it isn't both of what they're saying has no relationship to what's actually happening. And number two, it won't work, so it will fade out, so it's irrelevant to the long term. So both will use it for whatever they can get out of it while it's going on, and then just forget about it very quickly after it goes away. The reason you wouldn't let something like an Ancapistan happen is they're afraid it'll work. They're not just afraid it'll work, they'll know it'll work. Because how many corporations would be like, you know what? I want a corporate headquarters in Ancapistan or Spearcoastan or whatever the hell they're calling it. Yeah. Yeah, and we might even say like to protect us, like, you know, a corporation that exists in, 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 in the rest of the United States, you can't actually just have an office there. But they might create like some sort of subcorporation that only does business inside there. And maybe even pays taxes on money they move in, just like they do in foreign countries. But Once it's in there, baby, it's not yours anymore. You know, maybe that maybe there's a conglomeracy of cryptocurrency. Maybe you merge my ideas for a virtual nation with now a real physical place. And you make it to where you can't even, like, there's nothing they can even do about that money because it doesn't actually exist anywhere except in ones and zeros. And there's no place to go get it. Even if you came in Ancapistan, it still exists. But this is what real anarchists want, just to be left alone. We do not seek to be alone, only to be left alone. Now, why can't I do that? Why won't society allow that to happen? Any objection you come up with is irrelevant because I can say that happens every day in our society. Well, some child might not get a good education. Kids don't get good educations all the time. Right now, I've seen dumb people everywhere. I guarantee you most people, by the time they're 25, couldn't pass an exam they took in 11th grade. So... It, it, it doesn't matter. It's not, like, it's not like you prevent that from ever happening. And odds are we'd probably have a much better education system because we'd have lots of options for people to partake in. No matter what you say, the reason that you don't want to allow it is you're not comfortable with freedom. And you're afraid what it means if somebody else's definition of freedom works better than yours. And so when you hear them call them anarchists, they're not anarchists. Anarchist and communist cannot go together. Now, again, voluntary communism as a structure is fine, but communism as a system is the antithesis of anarchy. 
Because communism at its heart is seizing the means of production, you are already not an anarchist. And since nobody can own anything individually, and everything must be owned collectively, inside that collectivism, the only way you can do that is with a state. Again, communist, anarchist is like saying like saying dry water. It's, it's not a thing. It's not even just that they're incompatible. They're, they're actually direct opposites. They're actually direct opposites. Because you can't have private property and 100% collective ownership. It doesn't work. And you can't steal and be an anarchist. And taking something that's not yours or seizing it is stealing. Just my thoughts. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up for today. I want to remind you guys, if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that, do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, Catahoula Manufacturing Tard Bank Line. Um, Tard Bank Line belongs in your bug out bag, probably belongs in your fishing kit, probably belongs on your homestead. It is one of the best binding, tying cordages you can get your hands on. And Tard Bank line is exactly what it sounds like. It's 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 a line, nylon, 100% nylon line that's impregnated with tar. And you would think that that would be self-evident and obvious. And then if you bought something that said Tard Bank line, that it would be Tard Bank line. No, I only actually know of. Now there might be another brand. No one's ever brought one to me. I only know of one brand called, that says it's Tard Bank line that is Tard Bank Bank line. Nylon cord dyed black does not equal Tard. Bank line. It's black nylon line. Tar is tar. Tar soaked into the line is tarred bank line. Anything else, not tarred bank. Why am I going on like this? Because of what tarred bank line allows. If you ever use it, you'll understand it into how it actually holds knots, etc. And if you use something that's not tarred, you'll real quickly see the difference. So for building structures, for fishing, for Uh, setting up traps for holding things together in general. It's one of the best tools for the job. To me, my three that I always have in my kits is duct tape, zip ties, and I like the reusable ones that I recommend, and tarred bank line. With that, if I can't hold it together, I probably need a torch. I need a torch or a drill and bolts, one or the other. Otherwise, those three things will hold almost anything together. And again, Catahoula CMI twine is the, the kind of the thing on the label. That's what you're looking for. So even if you don't get it from T-Spaz, if you're ever like, hey, I'd like to set up some like some uh, trot lines or I'm going to do some limb lining or something like that, and I want some tarred bank line, you go to like Kmart or Walmart or whatever, and you see something that says tarred bank line on it. If it is not from Catahoula, don't buy it. That's just my advice for the day. Also, you can join the MSB, become a member, and support us. Just go to the site, click on Members to learn more. Uh, and remember, like the best way to stay in touch with everything we do, including a lot of stuff that never makes it on the air, is the Daily Mail. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, sign up for the Daily Mail. You get one email a day. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is by America, because it's the end of America Week. And this is probably, I keep saying some of these songs are like probably one of their biggest hits or their biggest hit. I don't know if this is their biggest hit or even uh, top two, top three. But it's my favorite song by America, and it's Ventura Highway. I, I have just, this just song is like, to me, this is a great driving song. This is a song that like, if you're out cruising the back roads or whatever, and the county mounties are out there, like, you can get a ticket just when this song comes on, if you're me anyway. And um, I also found it really an interesting idea of where this song came from. This song goes back to, um, 
I can't remember the, the band member's name, but he's one of the band members. And um, when he was a kid, uh, they had a flat tire out in the middle of the desert in California. And uh, his dad's turn at, uh, you know, changing a tire, and him and his brother are walking around screwing off. And they see a sign. A sign said Ventura. It was like, you know, Ventura 80 miles or whatever, something like that. Because there is no actual official Ventura Highway. It's not a thing. It's a highway that goes to Ventura, is what the guys in the song are talking about. And the whole thing is just about the experience of standing there in the middle of the desert. And then take that years later with an adult mindset and the creativity of writing a song and some artistic license, and you get alligator lizards in the air, etc. Right? So that's where that came from. Now, I want you to think about what we opened up with with our quote of the day by JFK. When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. Not all crises or crises, right, are huge. Sometimes we have small, little, everyday things that go wrong in our life that could be defined as a crisis, especially if we ch take the root of the word to be danger with opportunity attached to it. So being broke down on the side of the road is not the end of the world, especially if you have a spare tire and a dad knows how to change it. But there's some danger. You could get run over. Maybe the spare's flat because you weren't prepared, right, et cetera. Or you could turn it into some sort of an opportunity. In this case, it was an opportunity to take a walk, chew on a piece of grass, and experience the silence and the beauty of the desert. And because he did that as a kid, later it turned into a hit song. How many dangerous opportunities... Do we walk right past every day? You got a weekend coming up. I bet you there'll be one or two. One. Take advantage of them. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the Come on, Joe, you can always change your name.